0: Welcome to Off-Trail Learning. I'm Blake Bowles. Uh, Excuse me, you're not Blake Bowles. Dang it. Okay, well, there's that. Okay, so take two. Welcome to Off-Trail Learning. I'm Kevin Curry Knight.
1: Hey, Kevin, what are you doing on my podcast?
0: Well, I figured, Blake, we should probably do things a little bit differently today. Because you have a new book that's either coming out, or depending on when people are listening, it's already out, evocatively titled, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? So I feel like we should talk about that.
1: Side note, the book is available now. Go get it. All right. So you're going to ask me some questions about the book. Are you going to grill me? What what am I walking into here?
0: Well, I guess we should probably explain to listeners why I'm doing the interview. So I'm a professor at a college of education at East Carolina University. And I do some research on self-directed learning. And you and I, Blake, have talked a few times now. And you did me the great honor of asking while you were writing your drafts, whether I would read some of them and kind of comments and advice and stuff. And I, I really like this book. I was very impressed by it. Uh, It's a book written for primarily for parents, I think, who are thinking about whether they should be sending their kids to school. Is school the best place? And you make a really even handed research based case that while school is a great place for some kids, it's also not the best place for others. It's not the best fit for some kids. And that if your kid doesn't really fit school, there are a lot of other options. It's not a case for mourning and sadness. This, this is also an opportunity. So I really want to talk to you uh, about some of the stuff in your book. So no, I'm not going to grill you, I don't think. Uh, there'll be some interesting questions, but
1: yeah. <laughs> this sounds we'll fun. keep it friendly.
0: We'll yeah, it let's friendly. get into it. Cool. Well, first of all... Um, I want to ask you why you wrote this book, because you have three other books out, one of which is on self-directed learning generally. The other two are on various aspects of college, whether attending college without a four-year diploma or alternatives to college. So what does this book in particular do that the other books don't do?
1: There is some overlap with the content of the other books. The first book was about how you get into college if you don't go to high school, and I cover that in this new book. And the second book was about what you can do instead of doing traditional four-year higher education. And that's also covered a bit in this book. But those books were written with young people in mind as the audience, uh, teenagers or young adults. And this book, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School, is for parents. And I finally accepted that my audience is parents and usually moms. And they are the ones who find the books and they hand them to their kids and say, you should check this out. So I've accepted reality. I've also built up a bit of self-confidence because thinking about writing a book for parents when I am not a parent myself feels a bit hypocritical. Uh, Mm -hmm. But after about 15 years of working with other people's kids, mostly teenagers, and about 20,000 total contact hours with those young people, I figured I probably have enough experience to make some general objective observations about kids, especially adolescents, and I'd done enough other uh, you know, research and work in the field to think, okay, this was the time to write this book. And so I wanted to bring everything together, all the arguments for alternative education and also some new research that I found very compelling around parenting, around higher education, around anthropology, and just put it in one place and bring all of the best arguments for not sending a kid to school who is clearly suffering in school.
0: Yeah, I have to imagine that writing a book for parents is different. Did you feel like you had to frame your arguments differently, frame what you said and how you said it differently knowing that the audience is parents this time and not kids? Certainly.
1: Uh writing for young people, there's a whole dynamic of saying this is how you should speak to your parents to convince them that this path is a good one for you. And writing directly for parents is about, you know, saying this is how you understand what's going on with the young person in your life, if it feels sort of confusing. And so it was a whole new kind of challenge for me.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me that the title is phrased as a question, which is, why are you still sending your kids to school? Question mark, And it feels to me like that question could be taken in two ways. It could be taken rhetorically, like, oh my gosh, why are you still sending your kids to school? Or it can be framed in a more general, uh, legitimate, open, honest way. And it seems like you're really making... The, You're really doing the second one of those. You're asking, what are your reasons for sending your kids to school? Let's look at those reasons. Are they good reasons? Are there reasons maybe that you should look at alternatives?
1: Yeah, that's right. It is a provocative title and it is meant to get people's attention. But in the book, I say conventional school does work for some kids or even many kids. And so this book is not for everyone. This book is really only written for parents with kids. Uh, And these parents have noticed that the kids are not thriving. And in fact, they they seem to be suffering and really resisting school and schoolwork. And it's not just a temporary ailment. Uh, For some kids, they just have a bad month at school or a bad year at school or a rough teacher or a rough peer group. And then the problem passes and they go back to being a nice, normal, happy student. This is not for, for those parents necessarily. This is for For those whose kids have more uh, troublesome, more long-term, more uh, uh, difficult problems to diagnose. And and this is for parents who think, man, it's not just my kid. It it really might be the school, which is contributing a very large part of the problem.
0: Yeah, so why don't we pause there then? Because I'm sure a lot of parents have the, the situation where their child comes to them and they say, I'm really miserable at school. I really don't want to go back. Um, can we do something else? And I, I'm sure a lot of parents' reaction is, "Well, that's a pretty normal reaction. Tough, buck it up, kid. You're going back to school. Like every kid says this." So how do you differentiate then those kids, whom, like you said, it's just uh, it's it's a phase. It's it's a month-long difficulty or whatever. How do you differentiate that from kids who really may have a legitimate grounds for not wanting to be at school and not feeling like they fit school.
1: That's a great question. I think there might be an analogy to adults and their jobs. And every adult struggles in their their work somehow. And you can identify some struggles that are going to be temporary. You just have to tough it out and get through it. But then other times you realize, wow, this job really is a bad fit for me. Like the coworkers are toxic, the work is completely meaningless or it's actively harming me or the world. Uh, and if you continue to push through this job, despite seeing and feeling all of these negative ramifications, then what are you doing with your life? Like, Unless you have no other choice but to do this job, to put food on the table, then mm-hmm. a reasonable adult is going to look for alternatives. They're going to try to switch jobs. They might even go into self-employment. And so in the same way, if a young person seems to be having temporary problems, You know, Yes, you can wait it out a little bit, but once it starts to feel chronic, once they seem chronically disengaged, they seem really bored, and and, or they seem highly stressed in a way that's not healthy stress, but it's it's toxic stress, uh, and it doesn't go away on its own, it doesn't go away with normal interventions, then to continue to send your kid to school, despite all of these indicators, would be a, a rather senseless and perhaps cruel thing to do.
0: Yeah, I also wonder if there's – you can do some comparisons, baselines of what is your kid like when they're not in school? What are they like when they're on a vacation? What are they like when they're in their summer – time on their summer break? What are they like on the weekends or when they're pursuing their hobbies? Because I'm sure a lot of parents will be able to notice that there's a a big difference. Like your child might pursue this thing that's – just their passion, and they pursue it passionately and vigorously. But then when they're in school, it, it they, they look very different. So I, I wonder if that's also an indication.
1: Yeah, and we'll talk about this when we talk about Chapter 3, how kids learn to work hard if they don't go to regular school. Uh, but there are all these great examples of, for example, extracurriculars, band or mock trial or robotics team or sports teams. And you will observe the same kid who is so sullen and resistant in traditional school become alive and engaged and work their butts off in these different kinds of activities. And that is worth noticing, because that's very important information. Uh, Or that same kid might work their butt off playing a competitive video game or being part of some sort of hobby club. And, And that should show you um, as, as a parent, that your kid is not going to become some completely worthless sack of bones if they don't go to school, because they, mm. they will work hard. They do have a work ethic. It's just how do we uh, discover it? How do we unleash it?
0: Yeah, as a preview to listeners, this does have chapter three written all over it, so we will definitely get there. Um, I did want to ask you, though, uh, one of the things that really, really impressed me about this book, and I have a bias towards self-directed learning, as you do, is that you're really circumspect about it. Your goal isn't necessarily to that you have a product to sell. Your goal is, is to really allow the parent to think through this and make the best decision they can. So one of the quotes that I really enjoyed from the book early on, you say, I encourage you to fly no flag. Don't join the unschoolers and never look back. Instead, pledge allegiance only to the young person in your charge familiarize yourself with the full spectrum of options. Whenever you feel like you've found the answer to your kid's educational need, add the words for now. So why don't we talk about just briefly what some of the options are? Because a parent may not know kind of what the options are. They may think that their option is um, public school, private school, or homeschool. And, and maybe that's the extent of it. But you go into a lot of different options. So why don't we just briefly talk about what some of those options are?
1: Sure. So in the first chapter, I go through the full spectrum of alternatives, starting with what I consider to be the least alternative and progressing towards the most alternative. And so, yeah, when parents typically conceive of alternatives to conventional school, I think many of them think about the progressive private schools. Uh, Sometimes they're public schools, Mm -hmm. Montessori, Waldorf, uh, Reggio schools. And those are a great fit for a number of kids, at least for a while. Uh, But when they become middle school and high schools. Often there's just not that many options anymore, and they tend to look a lot like ritzy private schools and, and charge ritzy private yeah, school tuitions. Yeah, yeah. And so they become much less accessible, and they're just harder to find. And so those options tend to drop off, whereas there may be many, many Montessori preschools. Um,
0: and, and they still end up having a lot of the accoutrements of the public school that you may be trying to get out of. Like maybe maybe your child doesn't like being controlled in the way that they do at a public school. Well, uh progressive schools maybe take away some of that control, but there still is kind of a a certain control there that yeah. still may not fit your kid. Yeah,
1: Peter Gray wrote a wonderful piece about that in his Psychology Today blog. Um, about how progressive schools are not the same thing as self directed education, I think a lot of people think of what Montessori is like in the in the preschool or grade uh, elementary school years. a lot of age mixing a lot of freedom even if it 's in the the prepared environment of the Montessori classroom but yes as uh as you get closer to the college years, it tends to look a lot more like conventional school,
0: yeah. So okay. then the other options. Let's yeah, go the, yeah. From let's there, the I others.
1: talk about virtual and hybrid schools. And so in the US, these might uh, technically be charter schools, uh, but these are typically blended learning programs. And some of these can be really cool. It, it's just there's not often many of them, and they're, they're hit or miss. They might be there one year and gone the next. Mm-hmm. And so I reference a few that are in Santa Cruz, California that apparently are are really wonderful and flexible. You can do something that looks a lot like homeschooling or even eclectic uh, homeschooling, so like half unschooling, half homeschooling. Mm -hmm. You can have access to public school classrooms and resources, and sometimes you even get cash from the local school district to do your self-directed learning. Of course, with that cash will always come strings attached, and you usually have to work with a a public you know, school district advisor and check off certain boxes, uh, but for some families that is a reasonable compromise. And yep. so, if you have one of these these virtual hybrid or um, charter schools in your area, then that might be a good fit for a while at least. Um, from there, I go into the discussion about homeschooling, and I actually mostly spend my time exploding all the myths and stereotypes.
0: Right. I mean, I think right off the bat, people are often going to hear homeschooling and say, oh my gosh, like I, I don't have the time or the energy to replicate school at home. I'm not you know, qualified every to teach my day, kids. Right? There's no way I can do this. Yeah. It, it's funny because, I mean, you and I are both familiar with the research on homeschool and and the way homeschooling usually looks in practice doesn't look that much like that. In fact, it seems like when parents... Even when parents and families go into it thinking we're gonna replicate school at home, they give up on that idea very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And the amount of learning at a desk that looks anything like school decreases dramatically.
1: And and there's research to back that up about how homeschooling uh, parents often start with more conventional norms in mind and then progress towards more open ended and self directed uh, methods. so uh, I cite a lot of the research about homeschooling that that 's actually not very well known. Um, there is some pretty poor research out there that by and large originates from the HSLda the homeschool Legal Defense Association that is, is not very good at controlling its uh, its samples It, it hmm. often will compare homeschoolers who will have higher average incomes or other family resources to um, average public school students in the United States, which is not a fair comparison. That's apples and oranges. But from that, they'll say homeschoolers do better on standardized tests. They get into better colleges. None of that is true. Uh, The best research that I have found uh, that is recent research in the past five or 10 years says that homeschooling will neither help nor hurt your kid, uh, which I think is actually a relief because you don't have these big expectations or these big fears about homeschooling once you understand that. It's like, okay, compared to what my kid might have been doing in their local conventional school, whether public or private. Homeschooling is really just a a different method, which is roughly equal in terms of of outcomes related to college and career and test results. And so that should help a lot of parents chill out when they think about homeschooling.
0: And that's the same um, type of outcome that the admittedly very small studies that you cite in the book say about unschooling, which is like homeschooling taken a step further, which is really let's get rid of all forced curriculum altogether. And it seems like I think there were five studies that you alluded to and they're all small scale studies in your book that say look unschooled kids seem to turn out pretty fine they, they, they get into college at the same rate as everyone else too
1: yeah, and and those studies, and especially the ones by Peter Gray and your colleague Gina Riley, um, they're they're surveys, and that's an important thing to acknowledge. Uh, so a self-selected group of respondents has said this is you know our experience doing unschooling, and so it tells you something, but it's not uh, controlled in the sense of saying here's a group of unschoolers, uh, and we have compared them to a very similar group of kids going to school. I actually right. have a footnote in the book. Uh, from you Kevin, Uh, because you made an excellent observation about how difficult it is to do that research. Why maybe I have actually set the bar a bit too high for that research. I would love for you to elaborate that, uh, for a moment.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Peter Gray and I have disagreed about this a little bit. I, I don't think the research that, that he, he thinks can be done can actually be done because I don't think you can adjust variables. So, um, Most research in education looks something like this. You have a treatment group that gets a certain treatment, and you have the control group which gets whatever is business as usual. And you do your best to separate every variable that you can that could possibly affect the outcomes. So you you adjust for income level, you adjust for family background, you adjust for um, gender, race, whatever it is. And you test the control group against the experimental group, and you see whether the experimental group gets better outcomes. That's the way most education research works. I don't think you can do much of that with unschooling. First of all, because unschooling and homeschooling, by definition, are voluntary. You can't. So usually you would randomize sample. Um, So if you wanted to test a particular curriculum in in a school and see whether it's effective, you would find a way ethically to randomize who gets that treatment so that you're not uh, just getting people who select into that study. Well, you can't do that with unschooling. You can't say, we're going to take these 50 kids who are public schoolers at random and tell them they can't go to school anymore. Um, that would be the only way you could randomize a study like that. And clearly you can't do that for ethical reasons. Mm-hmm. But you also can't you also can't adjust for a lot of variables. Um, so well, in, in school, you're separated from your home environment. So you can at least adjust for your home environment. Like kids with a poor home environment in school are in the same setting as kids – from a decent home environment who are in school. But unschooling, you can't adjust those variables because almost by definition, home and school are intertwined.
1: Hmm. Yes, uh, it's messy. (laughs) These are all super important points. I I did want to highlight one organization that seems to have done slightly more controlled research, which I talk about in the book, uh, the Circle School in Pennsylvania, which is a a Sudbury model school. They did compare their um, graduates' outcomes to a, a similarly matched group of young people from the same area and with the same family income level. And they revealed that their graduates who are, are not forced to do any sort of curriculum whatsoever um, turned out just fine and even, I think, slightly better by some measurements than than the comparable group of local kids in a conventional school. So that is good yeah. news.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now... With all that said, it's it's almost like whenever you bring up like unschooling or homeschooling research, that will be one of the standard replies is well, you're testing kids who like voluntarily agree to be studied, and there's probably something different about those kids. Scientists call that the selection effect. Um, those mm-hmm. kids were like self-selected, so there's something different about these families. And the way I like to respond to that is, let's assume that's true. We may not be able to do anything about that. But even then, that's pretty spectacular because these are often kids who go through many years of not getting the standard school treatment that we're all convinced that kids need. And they do fine. I agree. Right? It's, it's, yeah, almost, they, like the, it's almost like a placebo. If you want to test a drug, you test it against a placebo, a sugar pill, which is basically getting nothing. Yeah. And if you find that even a small group of people respond to the placebo in the same way they respond to the drug – that's that's interesting. So I almost I almost consider unschool kids like the placebo. <laughs> These are the well, kids who didn't get the treatment that everyone seems to say you're supposed to get.
1: That's right, and and everyone assumes that if you don't get this treatment, if you don't go through conventional K through twelve education, then you will be somehow screwed up damaged, you'll be incompetent, you'll have giant gaps in your knowledge, you just won't be a functional adult. And so yes, that is what surveys of unschoolers have definitely shown, beyond a doubt, that this has worked. And that (laughs) there, you know, we can find some kids who have taken this radical alternative route, and they've turned out fine. And that does say something.
0: So let's then talk a little bit to to the skeptics, because there may be parents listening to this being like, that just sounds really crazy. Like these kids aren't deliberately taught to read or do math and they get into college if they want. They go into careers if they want. How is it possible, Blake, that these kids don't get those mandatory curriculum things, but they still can turn out okay and they can get into college and all that stuff?
1: Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. The first way is to say that these kids are somehow superheroes with magical skills. Another way to look at it, which I think is the more realistic way, is to say, well, what's our comparison here? What is actually going on in schools? How much learning, how much content retention, how much building of critical thinking skills is happening in a typical classroom where your kid, if they're not being unschooled, probably would have spent their time what is actually happening in schools is actually quite disappointing. Uh, Research by people like Brian Kaplan, who I talk about in chapter five, shows that the amount of learning that happens in most schools is pretty shockingly low. And so we can say, well, what's happening with an unschooled kid who seems to be doing nothing all day? You can say, well, maybe they actually are doing nothing, and they're not learning much in the the sense that that we can measure it, but maybe that is also what's happening in a regular school classroom. Maybe there's just not much going on there, and kids have learned how to, uh, you know, perform well in the the game of school, and they are able to pass tests. But really, they don't really remember much after the test, and we are just saving these unschooled kids the uh, sort of <laughs> the the trauma of having to go through. That, that uh, process of acting like you've learned something, regurgitating it, and then walking away. But um, on the other side of the spectrum, the way that they do it, I think, is through uh, the magic of intrinsic motivation. It's once an unschooler or self-directed learner decides that something is really important to them. And this might be college. This might be preparing to get into a certain career. This might be taking the SAT. Uh, Once they decide that that's important, then they muster all their resources and focus on it, and they get it done. They've learned how to be self-motivated and self-directed through heavy immersion in that process. And they've learned because they've been given the responsibility for their learning and education, and they know on some level that no one else is going to do it for them.
0: It's a really good segue into chapter three. But before we go there, I do want to just caveat that, again, you stress in the book, you're not encouraging people to stake claim on one of these things and say, OK, my kid's going to be an unschooler. You're just saying there are a lot of options here from more restrictive to less restrictive. And really, the parent and the family should be deciding which one is right for them. Um, so chapter three, here's a quote that you have. Uh, the, the chapter is called They Still Learn to Work Hard. And here's your quote. We can, in fact, let young people do the things they find inherently interesting and pleasurable. And in their self-directed pursuit, they will discover that life's greatest rewards require focus, determination, and deferred gratification. And I know I've heard this objection a lot about kids not going to a conventional school, and the objection runs something like this. Kids need to learn to work really hard, especially at stuff they don't immediately want to do. So they need to learn to work for extrinsic motivations, like grades or money when they're adults. And school is a really good way to do that. And the fear is that if they don't go to school or they go to some school that's less restrictive, they won't learn those lessons about how to work hard at things you don't enjoy. You say, In your chapter basically that that's wrong and you go through a a good bit of research to kind of back that up so let's let's go there
1: i'd like to start by acknowledging what is true in that counter argument i do think that if we suddenly decided to unschool an entire generation of young people or send them to you know radical democratic free schools where they really could do whatever they want. I think there actually would be a large scale societal problem in which uh, a lot of people don't want to do really dumb, pointless jobs. And it, there would be trouble filling those jobs. And maybe that would spell the, the downfall of our civilization or something like that. Maybe it would lead to some really wonderful and important reforms. There is a, a lot of play between the world of economics and jobs and the world of education. and And so. I want to say, yes, there is some truth to that, but for your kid, maybe that's a really good truth to embrace, because that means that you are helping your kid learn to look for something better, not just put up with whatever crappy, but even if it's a well-paid job that they are handed when they enter the workforce. And so, yes, this is kind of a privilege to try to extend your kid. to say not everyone can do this is 100% true, but saying that is not the same thing as saying your kid, who is completely miserable in school, or at least miserable enough to, to make you think, do I want to put them through this for years and years more? You know, you can still say, I can help my kid right now, and maybe this won't just help. I won't just be helping them today. I will be helping them down the line when they decide that they have higher standards for the kind of jobs they're going to do. Uh,
0: I think it's also i think it's also a little bit, uh, there's a grain of truth to that objection also in the following. I don't know if you've heard this, but I've talked to staff at a lot of different learning centers, like Sudbury Schools, uh, Agile Learning Centers, which you mentioned in the book. And most of them say a very similar thing, which is that, I think you even mentioned this a little bit in the book now that I think about it, Uh, that a lot of them say we can pretty much tell how long any given kid is going to do, quote unquote, do nothing before they engage in stuff based on the number of years they were in school prior to that. So if they're eight years old and they only, you know, went to like first and second grade and they come to a learning center, it's going to be really quick. Like they might do nothing for a few days and they'll snap out of it and start doing stuff. But if they come to a learning center like Sudbury ALC out of high school, like they've been through most of their K-12 experience, they might quote unquote do nothing, play on their screens, just check their phone, sit on the couch, sleep, for a little while before they start really figuring out something they want to do before they get bored enough to look around them and say well what do I want to do
1: yeah or or, or bored enough to look at the adults who are working at this learning center or this alternative school or the adults within their homeschooling or unschooling community and say ah these people are not my enemies these are these are people who can help me their resources their, their potential friends and, and allies and mentors and and that's another big and not very discussed aspect of self-directed learning, which is that teachers and other adults are no longer automatically considered these uh, authority figures to be uh, shunned and, and and avoided.
0: Yeah, I, at the risk of dating this podcast episode or recording this when a lot of people are home from school in the United States and elsewhere, kind of forcibly by the COVID-19, uh, the coronavirus situation, and I've seen a lot of parents really worried because their kids seem very unmotivated. And it's always one thing I kind of want to tell them is based on what I've seen and what I've heard from these learning center staff, now that they're not in school and they feel that immediate pressure of being in school, it's pretty normal that, that they're not going to be motivated for a while. That, oh my gosh, I just need to sit. I just need to decompress a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, they need to de-school. And the rule of thumb is the average kid will need about one month of de-schooling for every year that they've been in school. Right, right. That's, I think that's and very that, yeah.
0: accurate. Yeah. But you do say in this in this chapter, it's again, it's titled, They Still Learn to Work Hard. So how is that possible? Um, how is it possible that they're going to learn to work hard at things that they really may not immediately want to do if no one's forcing them to do it?
1: Well, I start with the assumption that – Uh, young people want to work already. They want to contribute to adult society. Uh, In the words of John Taylor Gatto, they want to feel useful because if they don't feel useful, then they will feel useless. And no one wants to feel useless. Uh, And so in the past, maybe up until 100 years ago, young people, especially adolescents, ages 13 and, and up, They had real work to do. They had genuine responsibilities and were treated more like adults than they were young children. And of course, a lot of these things were were pretty unsavory. Uh, You know, there's a good reason we've outlawed child labor, and that's how it should stay. Um, And I'm glad that people generally aren't starting their families at age 16 anymore. Um, But this rapid change that happened in the 20th century, where we essentially said, okay, you're not allowed to meaningfully contribute to adult society, or all this new work that's being created, this knowledge work is genuinely outside of your, your capacities, as for example, a 16 year old, you need more time and more training to do these jobs, we have rendered kids functionally useless. And that's a very difficult situation to be in, I think. I think this is why so many young people, especially adolescents, feel lost and confused and helpless in school. Because we have created this giant school system as a giant make-work project for young people. Because we don't know what else to do with them. We need to keep them off the streets. We need to keep them away from home so their parents can go to work. And so we create all these classes and assignments for them. But mostly the kids sense that it's just made-up work and the adults sense that too but we're all doing the song and dance anyways and so I think it's a hard situation young people want to contribute they want to work but we don't give them opportunities to work and so what do you do and I'd say what most young people do is they find the places where they can work they automatically seek them out and they not just where they can work but where they can feel a sense of respect a sense of control a sense of autonomy and perhaps the best example of this kind of environment that a young person has access to are is like a complex multiplayer computer game today. Yeah. And let's, yeah. just, let's just say Fortnite as the, the current example of a very popular game that's played. And Fortnite is a place where you come and you work with teammates to solve a very complex problem. Yes, it's often competitive. Uh, there are other games that are that are not necessarily competitive, like Minecraft, where the same phenomenon is happening. And all you have to do is look at how engaged a kid is playing a game like Minecraft or Fortnite or The Sims or World of Warcraft and say, wow, they are actually working hard on this. And it's a difficult thing for a lot of parents to swallow to say, my kid is working their butt off for this game? Why couldn't they just do this for, for homework, for schoolwork? And the answer is because we know that most schoolwork, intuitively, we know that most schoolwork is not important. And, and this game, even though it's a fabricated thing, we, we all know that the, the gold coins are not real. Um, this feels more real to a young person often than schoolwork does. Um, And and this is why I love to lean heavily on the book uh, Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal, a game designer who essentially explains uh, in 90 pages why kids love games, why games are very satisfying from the point of view of positive psychology, and why um, kids are learning to work hard. They're learning to voluntarily challenge themselves. They're seeking out what that uh, psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi calls the flow state. And that is something that we need to recognize, we need to respect, and we need to encourage. And it doesn't have to be video games. It can be other things that are game-like. And again, this is where extracurriculars like, for example, band or drama or robotics team or sports teams or skateboarding, all of these things fall into this category of game-like activities that are really inherently challenging Yet young people will throw themselves at these activities and they seek more and more challenges. And and that is the adult level work skill that I think we need to be developing. And kids will often do this automatically if given moral support and if given the opportunity.
0: This was a chapter that I really loved for two reasons. I don't know if you know this, Blake, but uh, the video game research was some of the research that actually brought me into self-directed learning. I'd stumbled across for a class that I was preparing for. Ironically, I teach future teachers. A class I was preparing for, I stumbled on some research about video games. And Educators are obsessed with video games because video game manufacturers have found ways, like you said, they just stumbled on these ways to get kids to do these really hard things voluntarily. And if you think about a a video game, it's really a learning device. It's a big learning device. The only way you can beat a level and level up is to learn and learn and learn. And the more I thought about it myself and the more I thought about it with my students and we talked about, cool, what lessons can we take from video games and how they're set up and apply to schools? The more we figured out schools are, are night and day different from video games. Their rewards, for instance, are immediate in video games. Do you get immediate feedback? That's not the case in school. Uh, Video games are voluntary. That's not the case in school. Um, There's no timetables on when you have to beat a particular level like there is in school. You can't take off the timetables. So that's uh, video game research was also really enticing to me.
1: And video games uh, are often more similar to the sort of work assignments that are available in the knowledge economy than the kind of work that school prepares kids to do.
0: That's right. The, the, and that was the next step in my own thinking was, okay, well, if video games seem more effective in their design to, for motivation than school, do most activities in life look more like video games or school? And yeah, I, I just looked around me and I found that most of the things we do in life, there is immediate feedback. There's not a really tight timetable on a particular thing. There's, there's the penalty for failure is not as high often as it is in school, stuff like that.
1: And I'd like to throw out there, um, That while I was a big lover of games when I was a kid myself and a teenager, I pretty much gave them up in my college years. And uh, what I end up writing a lot about in the book is not gaming and telling you why you should encourage your kids (laughs) to play more video games. I I use that more as as a... framework for setting up this notion of what game-like activities look like, and I expound more on the work that I've done taking young people traveling, uh, doing these these group retreats where they have to kind of learn how to grow up pretty quickly because they're living with other people and they're being held to new standards, um, going on wilderness programs, and so a lot of the examples and a lot of the work that I've done is actually not very screen-based, and and I'm still a big fan of those kinds of activities. And I think they'll only become more important as we spend more and more time in front of screens.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, you're saying that, uh, for instance, unschooled kids when they learn to read. um, It's often the case that it's not that they just really want to learn to read because learning to read is satisfying. It's that they really want to read a particular thing. And that, so it's really extrinsically motivated. Their goal is to read this particular thing and they have to go through the arduous process of learning to read almost extrinsically motivated uh, in order to do it. And they're willing to do it once they find something that they care enough about that they want to that they're willing to devote that kind of energy.
1: Yeah, we need to thank J.K. Rowling for teaching more kids to read <laughs> right, right, than anyone sure. else. Like I've yes. met so many unschoolers who said I wasn't forced to read, so I didn't read until age 7, and then I discovered Harry Potter, and then I learned to read within 2 weeks because right. I had a reason. And that's the same way that young people who seem to demonstrate no interest in academics, no interest in developing career skills will suddenly and often rapidly um, jump through the necessary hoops, build those skills to propel themselves uh, into higher education, into career, and that's what I've seen over and over again. It's a very th- difficult thing to to do research on. It's almost all anecdotal, and, and the website, you know, that I created, um, the website grownunschoolers.com, dot com, and that is just a series of anecdotes, you know, uh, of. <laughs> young people who were mostly unschooled or fully unschooled. And that's the story that happens over and over again. They say, I I didn't do anything that seemed important. Sometimes my parents were freaking out. And then I had a a reason to do something. And then I excelled. And, and so that is what I call like the, the folk wisdom or the folk psychology of unschooling or of self-directed learning. And, and that is what you have to put faith in when you take one of these more radical and self-directed paths as a parent. It, it's a very scary leap of faith.
0: Let's move to what may perhaps be the most ego-deflating chapter for parents to read, which is chapter four. And it's called, You Have Less Control Than You Think. Uh, What is this chapter, and particularly, uh, who is Judith Rich Harris, who you spend so much time talking about in that chapter?
1: I I wish I had the chance to meet Judith Rich Harris. She passed away at the end of 2018, just as I was starting to write um, this book. And she became famous and found a bit of notoriety for publishing her book called The Nurture Assumption in the late 90s and it was republished around 2007. And uh, she had this kind of crazy idea, um, as a as an author of college-level psychology textbooks and child development textbooks, that our th- basic assumptions about how kids develop in the long run uh, is pretty flawed. And she attacked this from the angle of nature versus nurture, genes and environment. And she said that, The consensus of scientists today uh, says that how a kid turns out in terms of measurable personality traits, big measurable life outcomes, um, is approximately 50% chalked up due to their genetics, and 50% chalked up due to the environment in which um, they're raised. And everyone pretty much agrees on this. It's not very controversial. But, she said, we all assume that the environment in which Uh, kids are raised is uh, synonymous with parenting, with active, goal-oriented parenting. Like, I'm going to parent this way. I'm going to parent with this style or this methodology. I'm going to make sure my kid gets into college. I'm going to make sure that they're prepared for this kind of career. I'm going to make them more musical, essentially thinking that you have a large amount of control over how your kid turns out. And she brought together all of this research in a brand new way, and she published it in her book, The Nurture Assumption, and she said, listen, we're right about the genetics part of it. And actually, we often don't see this uh, very clearly. For example, my dad was an entrepreneur for most of his adult life, and I have ended up being an entrepreneur for most of my adult life. Did my dad nurture me into this? Did he give me long lectures about the virtues of ent- entrepreneurialism? Uh, Maybe. He didn't actually give me long lectures. He did talk to me about his career. But is it also possible that my dad had some sort of unique combination of genes, some you know threshold for risk, some uh, abhorrence for, for traditional careers that made him an entrepreneur? And he simply passed those genes down to me in a way that, that I now express them? Like That's another very plausible explanation. And so she said, genes are important. Environment is also important, but it's not parents that are doing the nurturing. It's peers Mm -hmm. that are doing the nurturing. And that was her big original contribution to the science, uh, something she called group socialization theory. And she pulled in a, a ton of studies saying humans are very groupish. We're very tribal. And one of the original groups that we associate with is kids versus adults. And we do that for very... Normal reasons, uh, because your peers, you know, roughly speaking, your age group peers are the ones who you are going to, you know, spend the most time with in the world. Adults are the previous generation; they're going to to leave, and you are going to be stuck with your peers. And so, it makes sense to be more peer oriented, to take more cues from your peers. And so, she said, parents, if you think that you're actively parenting. You are there's a good chance you're deluding yourself. Instead, look to what the peer groups that your kids are, are are surrounded by. Look to what they are doing because that is where kids are taking many of their cues. And so that is one way in which you can have an influence on your kids is by shaping their peer groups. You have a limited time window to do that, essentially when kids are are young, because once they become adolescents, often you lose that control. They will choose their own peer groups, and and short of you know, whisking them away to a commune where everyone thinks exactly the same and has no contact with the outside world, uh, you've lost them already.
0: And what is the purpose of that message relative to the overall book? Because the overall book is trying to convince parents that if your child isn't suited to a conventional school, it's not the end of the world. There are a lot of other options. So what is the point in telling parents that they have uh, less less control over how their kids turn out than they think? It seems like uh, an an odd connection.
1: There's a lot of overlap between parenting and school. It's almost synonymous nowadays. To be a good parent is to make sure your kid succeeds in school. And so I actually felt it would be a bit irresponsible of me to try to write a a comprehensive argument against sending your kids to school without discussing the nature of modern parenting. And, And sociologists have a label for this modern parenting dogma, and it's called intensive Parenting. And it's essentially what Judith Rich Harris was railing against, what she was arguing against in her book. And there's a number of reasons that we have this intensive parenting approach. Uh, as uh, you know, over the course of the 20th century, families had fewer and fewer children in developed countries, and we showered more attention and resources on them. And you know, previously, when a, the average family had six or seven kids, you know, each one was a bit less. Precious, a bit less important. Uh, if one kid died, there were still six more. And today, the the death of a child or the failure, the perceived failure of a child, is is a much more impo- emotionally, um, you know, significant event. And so, these large scale demographic changes have made us focus more on kids. There's also economic influences. There's brain plasticity research where we thought, okay, we can really mold our kids. Uh, you know, when they're one-year-old by playing Mozart in the in the crib, which has been shown yeah. to be, you know, BS. Uh, there was also these high-profile abduction cases in the, the 80s that created stranger danger. And uh, I guess one of my favorite uh, ways to explain this comes from Alison Gopnik, who wrote The Gardener and the Carpenter. And she said, Today, most parents do not have much experience um, having raised siblings, because at this point, uh, anyone who's an adult now, it's, it's much more likely that they were raised by, by people in school. They were raised by childcare. Um, they were not raised by their siblings and they did not contribute to raising their own siblings or maybe they just don't have any siblings. And so what they do have is a ton of experience in jobs and in school, thinking about Mm. goal oriented tasks and how to complete them. And so So, when- so when you it, treat
0: your building your kids like building a spreadsheet.
1: Exactly. This, I mean, th- this is why she calls her book "The Gardener and the Carpenter." She says um, there are there are many important realms in which you want to think like a carpenter. When you want to have a very precise goal and outcome, you know, when you are a CEO, when you are a writer, you want to do something with technical precision. But kids do not meet that. That criteria, you need to think more like a gardener with kids. You can, you can, you know, add the fertilizer. You can nurture them, but you don't know what your tomato plant is going to look like when it comes up, right? It it could be something completely unexpected. You don't have very much control as a gardener, and so um, I really love her work, and I and I lean on that, and it's a great way to explain intensive parenting. And intensive parenting can be uh, exhausting for parents, and it can be exhausting. For kids, because there's this idea, another sociologist, Frank Ferretti, calls this idea parental determinism the idea that parents have almost godlike powers to shape the destinies of their kids, for better and for worse, which makes it very anxious and stressful to be a modern parent. And you think, okay. I can't screw this up. It's like your first big job assignment. It's like, I got to nail this. And so I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to, I'm going to read every book. I'm going to read, you know, at least a fraction of the 70,000 titles about parenting that are on amazon.com right now. Uh, I'm going to micromanage this thing. I'm going to ensure that it's
0: successful.
1: We're treating parenting like, like it's a job or like it's a school assignment.
0: Yeah. I love, I love Dr. Gopnik's analogy of, of the gardener and the carpenter because she, neither her nor Harris is saying like, ignore your kids. It really doesn't matter what you do. Like, you know, a gardener still has to water, still has to make sure the soil is right, still has to make sure the plants are, are, are tended to properly. But the point is that beyond that, there's just very little control that the gardener has and how those kids turn out. So I guess you're kind of saying like, yeah, if your kid doesn't really fit school, um, it's not like if they don't get A's and B's in the school path, uh, they're just going to be irreparably ruined. Like, you, you don't have as much control over those outcomes as you think. You can so- relax
1: and you can say, okay, school is just not a great fit for my kid. Like, it, it becomes much more okay to say that. Because you are opting out of this very strong cultural narrative of, I have to ensure my kids' success in school. That's so powerful. And it comes from so many different angles. It's very difficult to opt out of of intensive parenting. And so I'm not even sure how effective chapter four is going to be, because it's coming up against such strong tidewaters. Um, But I had to put it in there, Kevin. It felt irresponsible not to.
0: Yeah, no, I, I can see the point of not being sure how effective it is, because as, as a parent myself, um, you know, I know that things like, for instance, when we're at a playground and um, there's immense pressure if there are other parents there to look like you're monitoring your child very closely, even if you know that, that you probably don't have to monitor them so closely, it's almost like the very fact that other parents are there and they might expect that's right. Do that, right? They might think, "Oh my gosh, look at that parent over there and how negligent they are," um, even though you probably, I think all the parents there probably know I, I don't have to be standing like six feet feet from my kids at all times. But there's a lot of pressure there.
1: There is, and it's kind of difficult to offer practical advice in this chapter. But at the very end, I do attempt to do that, and I borrow it from uh, some other writers. Uh, Dixrud and Ned Johnson, who wrote The Self-Driven Child, an excellent book. And I borrow an analogy for them where they say, think of yourself as a business consultant instead of the manager or the boss of your kid and their education. Mm-hmm. A-, a good business consultant has more expertise than her client. She gets to know her client's business. She makes specific recommendations. But when the business succeeds or fails, the, the consultant does not imagine that it was, uh, you know, completely to her credit or to her detriment. There's a certain level of removal and detachment there where you say, I've given you my best. And now fundamentally, it's up to you. It's your business. And I think that is a really powerful way to think about parenting, to think about the the gardener analogy, and to step away at least a little bit from the, the, the craziness of intensive parenting.
0: Well, we're about 40 some, 50 minutes into the podcast. And it it occurs to me that we have yet to drop the C word, which is college. (laughs) And, um, if your child is an investment, then college is either the payoff or it's the, it bolsters, it's, it's the the thing that bolsters that investment. And you call it quote, the sec, our secular religion. That's a really strong term. Um, and I, I think your, your overall message is, first of all, it, it's not college or, or you, you're a failure at life. Um, but also maybe we shouldn't take college so seriously in terms of like where my child gets in, uh, how, you know, how they do in terms of their transcript, things like that. So let's explain that. Let's go back to secular religion. That's a strong term.
1: I borrowed an analogy at the beginning of that chapter from my friend Isaac Morehouse. Uh, He wrote a blog post years ago saying, imagine you live in a small town where pretty much everyone who is successful goes to church every Sunday. And you look around and you say, well, I want my kid to be successful also, so I better send them to church. But then you have a friend who's skeptical and says, well, it might just be that everyone who is already successful just happens to go to church. That's just where they hang out with each other. And so it doesn't actually make you more successful. It's just a sort of gathering point for people who are already successful. And you say, well, that may be true, but I just want to play it safe. And so I'm going to force my kid to go to church every Sunday. I think there's power in that analogy. It doesn't explain everything about our, our current higher education system, but it explains a lot.
0: Yeah. I always like to explain it as a a game of chicken. So the, the idea of the game of chicken is two drivers are driving towards a cliff or towards a certain mark. And the goal is to go farther than the other driver without falling over the cliff. So everyone's trying to kind of outdo each other. And I'm thinking that everyone else is going to get a bachelor's degree. So even if I don't want a bachelor's degree, I feel like I have to get one because you're going to get at least a bachelor's degree. And maybe I should get a master's degree because you're going to get a bachelor's degree. But then you also think that I'm going to get a bachelor's degree. So you get a bachelor's degree and maybe a master's degree. (laughs) right? And then we're all kind of stuck in this game of of, uh, like a gamesmanship sort of thing.
1: And think about the young people who are not very good at playing that school game. And yes. think about how that must feel to look at this credential inflation, to be told uh, you can't even get a job as a barista if you don't have a, a bachelor's degree nowadays. Like, how must that feel? How alienating and depressing might that be to be told that you have to n- keep playing this, this kind of crappy game that you're not very good at, not just for 12 years, but for 16 or 18 years? That's yeah. rough. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned uh, the work of Brian Kaplan. You mentioned before in the podcast, he wrote a book called The Case Against Education. And he uh, calls it, he's not the only one to call it this, the sheepskin effect, that the primary value of college is what he calls signaling value and the sheepskin effect. Can you explain that?
1: Brian Kaplan is a real interesting guy. He's a real iconoclast. He kind of likes to stir things up, but he's also a brilliant academic. I had him on the the podcast to talk about this. And so if you want more nuance, go back and look for his episode. The Sheepskin Effect is essentially the extra money that employers will pay someone because they have a credential, whether it's a high school uh, diploma or a college degree. And it's called the Sheepskin Effect because college diplomas used to be printed on, on sheepskin. And so if we think of college as a place where young people go to gain skills, that is what Brian Kaplan calls the human capital viewpoint. Then let's say if you go to college for four years, each year you should be gaining uh, kind of another chunk of skills. And so if, for example, you do three and a half years of a bachelor's degree, and then you drop out, you should be still highly, highly skilled and therefore highly employable. But he says that is not the case. If you have a lot of experience in college, but you don't have the degree, you are not rewarded, uh, or you, you are rewarded quite minimally by employers. Right. Employers want to see the degree. They want to see the credential. And that's the beginning of his argument for for job market signaling. He says... Right. Uh, a lot of what actually happens in both um, K-12, through 12, especially talks about high school, and in higher education is not about the content. It's about getting to the finish line and saying, I went through this ordeal, and therefore, I am a conscientious, diligent, and somewhat conformist worker who will do what you asked me to do.
0: Right, but if I recall correctly, he also says in the book that if we live in a society that that values that sheepskin effect, it still makes individual sense for us to go to college, right? Because there is a payoff. Even if the payoff isn't in the skills, it's in the d- degree. And even if we all know that's kind of a weak uh, idea, there's still a value in that. So the point of the of the chapter, I'm guessing, isn't necessarily, you know, ah, oh, your kids shouldn't go to college. Um
1: no. what is it? No, it's not. So Yes. Brian Kaplan says, while it may may not make sense from a societal perspective for us to be playing this, this race to get credentials, this credential inflation game, it still makes sense for individuals oftentimes to go for the bachelor's degree or maybe even a master's degree or something beyond that. But he unlike most other people who write about this topic, he considers all of the relevant factors that go into this college return on investment. And he says, a lot of what's going on, and this is where we get back to the uh, college as a secular religion analogy. He said, a lot of what's going on is that people who are already um, on the path to becoming financially successful, often due to their, their family background, the, the character traits and, and IQ scores that they bring, um, they are the ones who are going to college and then graduating and then earning high amounts of money and they're the ones who are pushing these statistics about average college earnings up and He says um, once you take into effect or take into account all of these background factors, the premium that a young person earns when they get a, a college degree is actually a lot less than we expect, and so the normal number roughly speaking that you might expect um, to get paid um, it, in addition to what you would have as just a high school graduate. Um, if you get a bachelor's degree, is about a million dollars of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And he said, now, if you take into account, if you control all of these variables, um, actually, the premium is much, much smaller than that. It's still a premium. You will still get paid more money um, if you go to college than if you don't. But it's not that much. And all of his assumptions about... Uh, who this person is who's going to college they're actually quite conservative and so he says you'll earn a premium if you are going to a highly regarded public university you're paying just a few thousand dollars per year for tuition you are paying zero for room and board Mm. and and uh, you essentially you go straight into work essentially you choose a really uh, tough college major like a stem field that's going to you know give you high rewards after you graduate if you don't mess around whatsoever, if you finish in four years, he said, then yeah, it's worth it. And so he does validate our cultural narrative around college leading to higher incomes, but only if you meet these very specific circumstances, and for for those who are not going to who are not likely to finish their degree, for those who are going to be paying a lot of money out of pocket to go to college. For those who are not especially strong students, academically speaking, it's a really bad deal. Like it's a negative effect on your lifetime income.
0: Yeah, college is important. But, you're, but you and Brian are saying that it's just not quite the investment that we thought it is unless you meet certain very specific uh, parameters. So we're probably coming up to about time. So let's go back to the original question of the kid who comes up to their parents and says, I really, really, really don't like school. I really think that we should look into other options and maybe the parents kind of thinking about that, uh, based on this book, what is, what is the message that you want to give to that parent?
1: The message I have for that young person is, um, at first see if it's just a temporary thing. If you decide tomorrow that school is the worst thing ever and you hate it, um, don't just immediately respond to that impulse and say i need to drop out of school tomorrow i need to transfer to this this uh, super alternative school you know sit with that feeling and see where it goes and this is going to depend on on who you are and how much of a a threshold for for pain and risk uh, that you you have already because maybe you can sit with that feeling for a week maybe you can sit with it for a month maybe for a whole year or multiple years but at some point this feeling of i am wasting the time of my life here in school like there may, there may be some benefits but the drawbacks are more numerous and they don't show any sign of of improving once you get to that tipping point then look for the alternatives do not be afraid to search far and wide and to go into these these wildernesses these hinterlands of the educational landscape and this is especially true if you are a citizen of the US or Canada or some of the other countries where there really are fairly flexible laws and flexible ways to to go from a non-traditional K through 12 into uh, college and career. Because we are extremely lucky and extremely privileged to have uh, such flexibility. And so, take advantage of it. Like, Don't throw this opportunity into the waste bin. Uh, You are living in the best time in history to choose a self-directed learning path, to choose something that's outside of the norm. And there's a lot of people who live in other parts of the world right now who can only dream of the liberties uh, and flexibility that we have to take these paths. And so don't squander it. If you think it's not working for you, explore the alternatives. You can always go back to school if they don't work out for you.
0: Blake Bowles, thank you for being a guest on your own podcast.
1: (laughs) Kevin Curry Knight, thank you so much for being a host on my podcast.